the expectation of the workforce has gone from expecting it to be just a job and where I have a boss and I'm just going to accept that, go through life and accept that uh, to one now where workers are coming to the workplace saying, I, you know, I actually want a coach. I want someone to develop me. I want to be a part of a bigger purpose. I want, you know, I know my work and life are going to be more blended. And so I know I want my job to kind of reflect who I am. That's my identity. Um, so that expectation has, has changed. I don't want my manager to just be an expert on my weaknesses. I want them to be an expert on my strengths. Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is Jim Harder, and he's the author of a new number one best-selling book called It's the Manager. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We're a real dialogue podcast, the opposite of an overproduced, highly contrived interview. And our goal is to celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. We are sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. And as a public service announcement, I'd like to let you know that in many states of the United States of America, it's actually illegal to drive slowly in the left-hand passing lane. Now, we continue our run of legendary authors with Dr. Jim Harder. He's the chief scientist for Gallup's workplace management practice. And it turns out he's discovered that the rate of productivity growth of people work at work is declining. And even more concerning, only 34% of American workers say they are engaged and two-thirds of managers say they are not engaged at work. His book is based on the largest study of its kind, 37.2 million people surveyed, uh, and they get into what's going on in the modern, modern workplace, and that's what our conversation is about. We talk about things like bosses versus coaches, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations, uh, creating a diverse and inclusive culture, how companies need to move to being strength-based environments, and a lot more. Check out Lockhead.com for the show notes on this episode and to uh, learn more about Dr. Harder's brand new book. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Unfortunately, only about 34% of people in the U.S. are engaged right now. It's been a bit, we've tracked it for quite a while. It's a little bit of an upward trend, but it's a slow upward trend and still way too low. And um, across the, the globe, 15% of, of workers are engaged. So there's a lot of room to growth to, to grow there. And, um, but that doesn't really tell, you know, tell us exactly what organizations get wrong. I think, um, the title of the book kind of gives you a clue as to, as to where we're headed with this, with our research. Um, one of the trends we've seen in workplaces and workplaces are tra- changing tremendously. And so I think it, it creates an even bigger burden on, on leaders, um, increased massive increases in diversity increases in, um, technology, mobile technology, blending work and life, um, increases in remote working, Organizations are more matrixed, um, increases in flex time that organizations are offering. And, uh, you know, you kind of couple that with globally, productivity has been um, 
increasing at a decreasing rate rate for decades. If you look at the overall, you know, aggregate I pattern. You off, but yeah, go it's ahead. Been it, productivity has been increasing at a decreasing rate. Is that what you right. said? <laughs> pro, pro, productivity. In, so the GDP per capita continues to increase, but at a decreasing rate. And um, if you look at the you aggregate across, numbers by chance, doctor, that's about two and a half percent. I think right now, somewhere in there. And it's, it was in the four above 4% earlier decades. And, uh, but so that, that's one sign. And then the, the, the other, the other thing is that we've seen that, um, that, uh, the practice of management hasn't kept up with the science of management. So sci the science of management has advanced significantly in recent decades, but the practice of management hasn't. And so I think leveraging the science is, is one area. Um, what this new workforce is asking for is a coach, not a boss. And so moving from a culture of boss to coach I think is one of the more critical things organizations need to be thinking about. And it relates to what leaders are asking for, which is a changed culture. Most leaders want, they know inherently that their culture has to change to match this changing workforce. Um, and it has a lot to do with being more efficient. You know, we, we can't just rely on process efficiency anymore. We need people efficiency. Hmm. So what I is threw, I threw a lot out. You, uh, you yeah, there's Go a ahead. lot there and a lot, uh, a lot that's fascinating there, frankly. What, what is people efficiency? People efficiency is getting people into roles where they know what's expected of them, um, where um, so where they have clear expectations, where they're coached on an ongoing basis to do what they do best, to use their strengths as opposed to trying to, you know, always, instead of a manager being an expert on your weaknesses, it kind of, that kind of grinds people down a bit. You know, they have a manager who's continuously only knows you for your weaknesses. Um, so a strengths-based environment, and then one where there's high accountability. Um, you know, in these, in these uh, flexible environments and remote working environments that are more common nowadays, uh, you've got to be even more purposeful about those three things, setting expectations, continually touching base with people, coaching them, knowing them for their strengths, having a high trust environment, and then um, accountability. You've got to have accountability there or the rest of it doesn't work too well. Um, so people efficiency is really about uh, knowing, uh, really teaching managers, well, first hiring the right people to begin with, right? You've got to hire managers who, who are just naturally good at doing that, who, who really look forward to the, you call it the messiness of people, you know? Um, you come to work and you either look forward to the, to the idiosyncrasies of people or, or it's a burden to you. Uh, the goal is to hire people where it's a natural thing that they like to do. That's half of it. The other half of it is training them effectively so that they have the right tools to, to create some shortcuts to get to know people more quickly and, and to manage them more efficiently in terms of who they are as opposed to who they aren't. Hmm. So tell me more about what you mean by a strength-based approach. I find that fascinating. Yeah. So traditional management would say, okay, let's list off uh, 20 to 50 competencies that we know we want people to accomplish in this job. And let's expect everybody to go about getting to those in the same manner. Um, let's, let's train them to kind of be in a cookie cutter type of approach. A strengths-based approach starts with a different premise. It says, well, all of us have some inherent differences. We've got some innate uh, tendencies, some natural tendencies that are different. Anybody who has multiple kids can see it in their kids unless they're identical twins, right? They can see that these kids, that their kids come out a bit different. They act different. Some of them are more shy. Some are more outgoing. Some are more analytical. Um, so first, we've got to have some tools to get to know who people are their natural tendencies 
Then a strengths-based approach is you leverage those tendencies. It doesn't mean people are fixed. We, they still develop. You got to develop people, but you got you develop them through who they naturally are, as opposed to trying to get them to be someone who they're not. So if I'm a highly focused person, uh, which that's one of my top five areas, um, called themes. Um, and you, you try to get me into a situation where I've got to continue to change direction all day long. It wears me down. If, uh, if I can be absorbed in something for a long period of time, time flies by, uh, time flies by. I'm not worn down. I'm actually have more energy at the end of the day. Um, so knowing that about somebody matters a lot in terms of how you manage them. Isn't that interesting? The areas where we have, I don't know what the right word is, maybe more natural skills or naturally we're drawn to, they do fire us up. We want to do more of it. And areas that are hard for us or uninteresting for us kind of grind us down, right? I'm I'm somebody who's who's creative, uh, who's very intuitive and so forth. And so if you say to me, go do something along those lines, you know, go write, I can do that. If you give me a spreadsheet, um, A, I want to kill myself, and B, you better send somebody over who can walk me through this thing because I'm not going to be able to get through it myself. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, you know, I can remember at the beginning of my career, um, a lot of people say, well, you need to become a well-rounded manager or leader, and you have to have skills in all these different domains. And um, I like a lot of things I got told early in my career that I didn't think made any sense to me. I said, fuck that. Uh, I'm going to focus on the areas where I'm drawn to, and more importantly, the areas where I think I make the biggest difference, and I'm going to focus on that. And um, it's, you know, yes, you have to be, you know, in my case, you have to learn how to read a spreadsheet, but I never focused on trying to get good at any of the things I was particularly bad at, and I stayed focused on the things that I was good at. And so I'm just curious, what is your research telling you about um, this, this idea of being a kind of more focused on areas where you stand out versus being, quote unquote, well-rounded? It's, it speaks right to that issue of um, uh, people efficiency. Um, if you grind people down, it's just inefficient. Uh, and um, so you, you described what, what it's like for you to be kind of efficient and energized. And, uh, you know, where at the end of the day, you actually have more energy, not less. Uh, other people are just the opposite of you. There are people that actually get fired up about spreadsheets. That's good. That's good for us. You know, it's good for everybody. That God bless them. People have, yeah. Yeah, um, no, vi- as my friend Safi Bacal, the incredible author of Loonshot, says, Viva la différence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So our research is telling us that if you invest the skill development uh, after first knowing who people naturally are, who their innate uh, traits are, you can still develop skills and you should. It doesn't mean you're fixed. Like you've probably learned a tremendous number of things in your work that can that build on top of your creativity, right? When you're when you're doing your creative work, you continue to learn, you continue to develop within that realm, and it, it just you, you blossom within within those realms that you're really good at. But uh, so skill, I think we get skill development wrong sometimes. We think skill development should be that we're trying to make everybody be the same. Um, and when we say real, well-rounded, what do we really mean by that? Um, we'd, we'd argue that you know I'd argue from the research we've looked at. Well-rounded may not be the best approach, but you should still seek out skills that make you, you know, that get you continuously better at what you do. But you have to be selective about those skills so they build on your strengths. 
Um, I just think most people go into a workplace and in life, not having a good foundation of what those natural innate strengths are. And if you start there, it changes everything. So are you saying that we should focus on getting better at our strengths and be less concerned about shoring up our weaknesses? I think that we should uh, be aware of our weaknesses, but we need to spend, if we spend a lot more time focusing on our strengths and making our weaknesses less relevant, it will be a lot more efficient and finding other people that fill those gaps as we're talking about. I can kind of give you an example with a research study we did, if that would help. Yeah, maybe. absolutely. Okay. So uh, we, we conducted a study where we asked people to relive their previous work day. Um, we asked them what they did, how many hours they spent doing it, uh, how they felt. And uh, before, before we asked them those questions, we, we measured how engaged they were in their work. And, uh, you know, one of the top predictors of, of being engaged at work in terms of a day was how many hours people felt, as I mentioned earlier, so absorbed in their work that time passed quickly. Another finding kind of interesting to me from a strengths perspective is ask people, how much time did you spend doing what you do best at work? And then how much time do you, did you spend doing what you don't do well at work? Um, and what we found is that engaged workers spent four times as much time doing what they do best is what they don't do well. The surprising thing to me was uh, workers who are disengaged, so actively disengaged, these, mean, these are people who are pretty, for lack of a better term, you might like this, pissed off um, at their workplace. Um, they had a one-to-one -one ratio of being engaged, or, or pardon me, of using their strengths, doing what they do best to what they don't do well. So is a balance. So if, if we go about the workplace saying, you know, people ought to be well-rounded. They're, they ought to balance out using their strengths and developing their weaknesses. And it, it's likely to result in people who are actively disengaged, who are disengaged at work, who just aren't, uh, you know, and the reason for that psychologically is what happens to us negatively tends to sting and stick with us. We, uh, we can much more easily identify with more negative emotions than we can a lot of positive emotions. It sticks in our brain. Um, if you're disrespected, uh, th that, uh, that sears into your brain, you remember that forever. Um, the negatives stick with, that's why you have to have so much more. We have to be so intentional about the positive experiences and, and really, uh, managers need to be very intentional about getting people into situations where they can do what they do best more, more often. And it doesn't always happen naturally. Hmm. I find that so fascinating. I have long believed Dr. Harder that sort of the uh, some of the hallmarks of legendary managers and leaders are a i have tremendous self-knowledge in other words i know what i'm strong at and i know what i'm weak at and i build a team around me to mitigate my weaknesses or liabilities and to amplify my strengths you know so for someone like me who's highly creative and you know very externally focused and verbal and and more strategic than tactical my team's always had a disproportionate number of very analytical very detailed process spreadsheet planning because i'm the opposite of that and so i guess this leads me to a question which is is that sort of what your research is telling us, that a hallmark of a great manager or leader is somebody who, A, is super self-aware of their natural strengths and liabilities, and then, B, can construct a team around them as a result of that? Or, or how do you think about it? 
Yeah, I, th- I think there's some wisdom in that, that uh, uh, when you know yourself as a starting point, and you, both from a strengths and a weakness perspective, you can build a team around you that fills in those gaps. And also, um, I would argue that when a manager or leader knows themselves, they know how they can manage most efficiently to develop other people, um, to set clear expectations in a way that's authentic to them. Um, and they can also, uh, not just for themselves, they can, they can build the rest of the team so it doesn't just complement them, but so that those team members complement one another. So they're building a team that's, that's self-aware so that they know if I do X, another team member is going to do Y, and that it's predictable. And that happens both from awareness. It also happens through practice, just working together for a longer period of time. And, and the good news is great managers keep people longer, so there's a better chance for that practice to build up and for the teams to be more seamless. Um, I, I see that happen all the time with great teams. You, you just People can almost read each other's minds eventually. Well, and the other interesting thing, you tell me if you think this is a, a, a good idea or a dumb idea. When a new manager or leader comes into a company that I'm involved with, I also watch for how many people does she or he bring. Mm-hmm. And I'm always a little concerned when they bring very few, if any, people with them. And then sometimes you see uh, an executive or a leader will come into a company and they'll bring 30 people with them. And as you begin to meet these people and you, and you think, wow, that was, that person's fucking unbelievable. And it, geez, I met, I just met so-and-so. And then you, and then you start to realize, Hey, wait a minute. I think we might have a, a legendary hire because I've just met that, you know, 10 of the 30 people she brought into the company and all of them impressed the hell out of me. And man, this is a really good thing. And then sometimes you bring in a senior leader and they bring very few people with them. Oh, and you start to start, start scratching their heads, uh, or I start scratching my head rather. And so, is that also something you look for? Is to sort of see who follows this leader, so to speak? Yeah, there's no question that leaders and man, successful leaders and managers have uh, followers who will always seek them out um, because they know that uh, this is a person who is uh, driving towards success. People want to be a part of success and they want to, they want to know that they're part of that success. They've probably also recognized um, what, what they can do. Um, so they get recognition for, for doing something significant related to some outcome that they've worked on before. So yeah, there's a, um, when we've talked to employees of great managers, they'll, they'll tell us that even though they may have changed jobs and moved away from that manager at some point, they'll always know that's the person to, to work for. Sometimes actually people learn it too late. You know, they, they think the grass is going to be greener because, you know, most people could go through uh, 10 managers and maybe find one that's exceptional. Um, if you find, if you find, if you find that exceptional manager kind of with that natural, ability to manage. If you find that exceptional manager early on in your career, you may not appreciate it as much um, because you haven't seen the other side of the yes. street, so to speak. <laughs> so uh, I, I would even, you know, millennials are uh, tend to be switching jobs a lot more. And I think they, uh, I think it's really important. Um, and the Gen Z is now coming into the workforce. It's important for them to know that, you know, when they, when they get a good manager to, to know that that's, uh, that that's something to not take for granted. Yes. Um, now hopefully in the future, there'll be a lot more would do a better job of selecting and, and educating managers on how to do it right. But the, the reason, uh, Chris, that it kind of falls out that way, we ask managers how they got into their role 
and they gave us two gave us two two top reasons how they got into the role of manager. You might be able to guess these. Um, one is they're successful in a non-managerial role. Right. And so you take the and, best salesperson and make them right. a sales manager. <laughs> yeah, they they did really and, and well and in sales or a shitty manager, and you lose your best sales rep. Right. <laughs> yeah. What do you think the other one is? Uh, my boss got shot and, uh, <laughs> they looked around and sort of by hook or by crook on accident or somehow I won some game of musical chairs when my boss got fired and or left. Related to that, uh, it's, uh, they've, they've been in the company long, a long time. Uh, so, tenure. Yeah. Just stick around. You stick around and you write to passage. Now, both of those on the surface seem a bit, you know, they seem How pretty How many equitable. years have you been around? <laughs> Well, 34. <laughs> yeah, so sooner or later you became a C-level executive because somebody said, hey, uh, Jim's been here for 34 years. Uh, maybe so we I'm, should promote him. <laughs> I shouldn't, so you're saying I shouldn't criticize that particular criteria, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've certainly, maybe it worked for you. <laughs> I've certainly appreciated uh, tenure the longer I've, I've been here, that's for sure. <laughs> um but you know there wasn't there's another reason that did relate to the level of talent of the manager uh, when i say talent the natural because it was innate manager tendencies and that's when they said that they had a mentor who encouraged them to be a manager so somehow those mentors saw something in them and then they, they became a manager and they they tended to have more of those natural you know abilities to motivate people and organize and collaborate and initiate things and um, think through problems and all the things that managers, successful managers are good at. You know, it's interesting because uh, that you say that because I have people in my life who today are very successful CEOs or some other kind of C-level executive who, when I met them many years earlier and sort of asked them about their career path, said, oh, you know, I don't care about being the CEO or the CMO or the CFO or whatever it is. You know, I just want this or that. And and, and today they're successful. And, and it's interesting when I see people high potential like that who say that, you know, I tend to try to encourage them. Maybe they do go on or maybe they don't. But I always try to, high, uh, to, to encourage high potential people and say, well, you know, Fred, I, I think you might be a great CMO or, or, or Sally, you know what, you have some natural skills here and you're really applying yourself, you know, maybe you could be a great CEO one day or, or founder or whatever it is. And it is interesting how, uh, and I don't know if it's true with people of less potential who maybe don't hear this level of encouragement, but it is interesting how encouragement from your peers or people you know and respect can change one's self-definition. And once we begin to change our self-definition, maybe we see ourselves as a CEO or a CMO or whatever. I think those comments are invaluable. I would think of those as developmental conversations that could happen in, you know, 10 minutes or they could happen in a longer conversation. But um, when someone notices something that you're that you're good at, you kind of repractice that in your mind. It does give you a lot of self-efficacy. And I think that's why we see a lot of, um, now in some cases they are managers or leaders with some natural or people with natural ability to manage or lead. In other cases, maybe they have kind of a moderate level of manager leadership ability, but they know who they are. And so they're able to use, use those traits effectively um, and still get a lot better. And so we, we do a lot of training and education of managers and leaders, uh, knowing that, you know, they may have gotten into those jobs through the right to passage, so to speak, the things we're talking about, but 
there's still a lot, there's still traits that we can learn about and capture. And if they know themselves, they can go a lot further than if they don't. Um, and there's a lot to be said for the, for feedback and just learning where you're most effective. One of the other things I'm very curious about is you think about certain jobs, you know, you think about, I don't know, maybe CFO as an example, and you sort of, if you and I were to whiteboard out the characteristics of what we thought CFOs need to have to be successful, and, you know, there's probably a core set of skills that we could probably agree on that you sort of have to have these skills, but then there'd be a, a longer part of that list where I think you could look at it and you could go, well, it depends. And so I guess this is leading me to maybe a bit of an insight and a question to go with what you've uncovered in your book here, which is um, the attributes of the leader. Let me say it in the way that I, I have found it, and you tell me what has shown up in the research. The attributes of the leader are less important. What's more important is that the leader be self-actualized insofar as she knows what she's really good at. And as we talked about a little bit earlier, she knows what she's not good at and that she has an ability to build a team based on her natural strengths and natural weaknesses. And that that sort of self-awareness and maybe team building skill is actually more important than the list of attributes because a person with different attributes can be successful in the job if they have that awareness and that ability to build a team. That's been my experience, but I'm curious what the research is telling us. Yeah. If you look at just on an individual basis, um, it's about 50, 50 is, is the way it turns out. So half of it is just having those natural traits, you know, that where some people are just more predisposed to be really good at leading other people. Uh, the other half is how you use your strengths to develop. So you can go a long ways on both actually. Um, and so we've identified traits that you could actually select for scientifically and to get, you know, leaders and managers into the right positions. But the other half of it is uh, in this new workforce uh, in particular. So I'll kind of speak in the language of the newer workforce and what they're looking for. It's moving from that role of boss to coach. How do I do that most effectively? And how does a leader build a culture where people, where the expectation is to move from boss to coach. Now, coach doesn't mean lack of accountability, but it means more continuous discussion, conversation, much like a, a coach in athletics. You know, they're going to be, they're, they're not going to just uh, give people the plays and the training and preseason and then let them go play a bunch of games and come back in, in, a, in, a, in a year or six months and say, here's how you did. Um, they're going to be coaching them along practice by practice, game by game, and know that it's an individual thing in terms of getting it right. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but yeah, um, I, I think so. You know, the other interesting thing to me about this, this coach versus boss thing, and you tell me what the research tells us, but in a coaching relationship, if you're my coach, I want a lot of communication with you. I want a lot of interaction. I want a lot of collaboration, discussion, feedback. Uh, and you and I being of a similar vintage, if I could put it that way, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a world where, you know, you talk to your boss a couple times a quarter and you run off and do your own thing. And, you know, yes, there's a staff meeting every Monday or whatever, but for the most part, you're kind of off on your own and there's not as much interaction. And it, it, it seems like the world has, has changed pretty dramatically in that regard. Yeah, it, uh, now, the interesting thing to me is that the, the, the change in uh, 
the newer workforce has more to do with expectation. Um, you know, the expectation of what, what work should and can be as opposed to, um, you know, what's good or bad for people because what's been good or bad for people and has been kind of the same over the decades, really human nature. How do we leverage it effectively? We, we leverage human nature in a very similar way if we do it right. But the expectation of the workforce has gone from expecting it to be just a job and where I have a boss and I'm just going to accept that, go through life and accept that uh, to one now where workers are coming to the workplace saying, I, you know, I actually want a coach. I want someone to develop me. I want to be a part of a bigger purpose. I want, um, you know, I know my work and life are going to be more blended. And so I know I want my job to kind of reflect who I am. That's my identity. Um, so that expectation has, has changed. I don't want my manager to just be an expert on my weaknesses. I want them to be an expert on my strengths and, uh, you know, coach me and give me critical feedback, but that happens a lot easier. If you know me for who I am first, it's a, it's, if you have trust, right. How can you have trust if, if, if your manager doesn't, doesn't know you, you know, doesn't know something about you in terms of what you do. Well, it's really hard. If you're critiquing all the time, um, it's not going to be accepted very well by anybody. And that's just human nature. And so are we seeing more and more in the research, a blurring between who I am outside and versus inside work you know this whole oh it's not personal jim it's just business you know for me i've always found that to be bullshit it's it's all personal and i've never liked the paradigm of work-life balance because to me it suggests that work is over here and the rest of your life is over there and you're trying to balance the two when in point of fact what motivates me in my career, in my job, motivates me in my life. And they're just sort of different use cases of, of me, but it's, it's all me. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely. I think uh, um, work-life balance kind of implies that work has to be a negative. Yeah. Um, that it's, that is doomed to be a negative part of your life. And so we try to limit what people do, even, even the, uh, you know, some of these places that will say, well, we don't want you to uh, work on the weekends because we want to improve your well-being. What about people who are absorbed in their work? Is that improving their well-being? What if they want to, you know, what, what if they want to work on a Sunday so they can get ahead um, and, and feel more confident in, in, on Monday when they go to work and feel like they've gotten some stuff checked off their list? Why do we have to put requirements on hours worked as much? Now, we'd have to be careful, of course, to know, you know, when individuals become burned out, right? That's the job of the manager. They, they, they know, they know each person and they know what, they know their life situation enough to know, you know, here's how I manage this person individually based on what they do well, what they don't do well, and, and they're, and what they're going through in their life. They might be going through some things outside of work that you have to kind of think about with them and think about the long term. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really buy into the notion of work-life balance either. I kind of know what people mean by it, Sure, but I, but I don't, um, you know, what, I guess what, what we should mean by it is that you're, that the work exists to develop people, not only at work, but in their lives. And, um, one of our, uh, scientists, he's actually just coming into Omaha, uh, tonight to meet with us. Uh, his name's, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the, uh, author of flow. Many people might be familiar with his work. Uh, I, I love that. I love his work. And he'll uh, be, I mean, I've, I've read that whole book. It's a little bit of a heavy lift for most people. Yeah. Um, and have you seen the documentary happy that's based on his research? 
I don't know that I have. I need to check that out. Yeah, it's worth watching. It, for people who don't want to dig into the book, I always recommend the movie. It's just called Happy, if I'm not mistaken. And it's it's predicated on his research. And uh, it's a real... Uh, I recommend, you know, you sit down with the people that you love in your life and a glass of wine and, and, and really get into it because his... And I, I'm dying to hear what you have to say. What I remember about his work the most is this distinction between extrinsic and intrinsic and how um, it's fascinating to look at people who have these intrinsic motivations and why that makes them so happy. And we live in a world where, and I think there's some extrinsic that is very positive, but we live in a world where it feels like to me, but again, I want to hear what you say, doctor, that we've, we've confused the extrinsic as the source of real happiness and we're, we've gotten overweight. I think both are important on some levels, but it feels like in, in Western society, if I could call it that, we're massively overweighted on extrinsic. Yeah, the, the intrinsic is uh, has probably been the most overlooked, as you suggest, um, in in workplaces in general and in society in general um, for people. That, and a lot of that kind of stems from what we were talking about before, just finding out what you do best. Because if you can get into – if you can do work where you're doing what you do best, you do get into that flow state. And uh, if time's passing quickly, why would you want to shut it off? You know, why do you put time requirements on it? Um, and, and, you know, how do you uh, – Make sure you're taking care of the other. So, so work can get you. One of my mentors, Don Clefton, said um, it shouldn't be just about uh, getting uh, work done through people. It should be about getting people done through work, right? And so, uh, um, yeah, getting into a flow state at work means first and foremost you've got to know yourself, and you've got to. Uh, you know, I I mentioned earlier I get into flow state if I some sometimes I have to talk about remote working. I, I have to plan out entire days to get writing done and and research and to, to get absorbed in it and i've got strategies for how i do that but um at the end of the day i'll feel refreshed energized um because i can just kind of go but uh if i'm you know back-to-back -back meetings on different topics at the end of the day even though it's a part of my job you know it's a part of the it's still gonna it's gonna wear me down somewhat um because i'm changing topics and everything um, but yeah, and speaking of the extrinsic, I would also acknowledge though, that the ex it isn't one or the other, you know, um, there are extrinsic motivators that are still really important. Um, they give us some fulfillment, make us feel like we've done something, uh, equitable. It helps us compare ourselves to others in some cases and, and build some equity. So if I, if I produce more, I should be rewarded for that. Right. Um, our high producers should be rewarded more with extrinsically as well as intrinsically. Yeah, we had uh, Carrie Walsh Jennings on the podcast, um, and we, her and I talked about this. This is an area of fascination for me, and, and she, it, in our conversation, I was noticing, Jim, that she felt very intrinsically motivated, and yet, mm -hmm. you know, three gold medals and one bronze medal and the most wins in beach volleyball history, and she's considered the greatest player of all time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I sort of asked her about this, and she sort of, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that her primary motivation was very intrinsic feeling for her. But like, hey, don't be confused. I want the gold medal. The bronze medal pissed me off. And, mm -hmm. you know, when the sponsor checks show up, I like cashing them. Right? <laughs> that's that's a great example. Very vivid example. And, and so uh, it, it is an interesting combination. On one hand, um, I think 
were trying to live a life and have a career where we would do it for free. You know, I remember talking to Andre Iguodala from the Warriors about this when, when he was on, you know, he's like, hey, um, I play basketball for a living. Like I play a little kid's game, you know, and I, I love basketball. I play basketball mm-hmm. for free. And yeah, let's talk about my shoe contract and, and how much the Warriors pay me. And, you know, and of course, more importantly than even the money is how many championships the Warriors win. And so it is a, it is a bit of a mind twister in one's own life to say, okay, on one hand, how do I create a career and a job for myself that for the most part, maybe not all the time, but a, you know, some disproportionate amount of time, I feel like, wow, I would just do this anyway. This is awesome. But at the same time, the competitor in us says, hey, am I being compensated fairly or maybe even more than fairly? And am I, you know, uh, am I quote unquote winning in my job by comparison with others? That, that's still, we're still human beings. That shit matters. Right, right. So how do you think about that balance? Well, I think what, uh, you know, the intrinsic side is what, if it's not there, that's where when burnout occurs. So the extrinsic is still important, but the part that will cause burnout is when you're going through the grind of the day-to-day, whether it's your job or whether, you know, athletics is easy to make that parallel. I've seen plenty of athletes um, just burn out, even though they may have been very intrinsically motivated and, um, high school or college, they just end up burning out because the, it isn't fun to them anymore for whatever reason. In many cases, it's because they didn't have a great, uh, what we were calling manager or leader, but um, they didn't have a great coach, you know, that so it wasn't fun for them anymore. Um, it wasn't something they looked forward to every day. On the other hand, you know, even athletes that we've studied that have, that have been very successful over time have what we call mastery where they look forward to the practice part of it. They have less injuries. They just look forward to the to, to the to the preparation part of it. And uh, I think if you know if you don't look forward to the day to day grind or the preparation, shouldn't call it grind, I guess, but the day to day preparation um, of in, in any kind of work, you know, the build up to what you're trying to get done, then I think that's when you have the potential for burnout. Yeah, that's a very fascinating comment you made, Doctor. That intrinsic is what causes burnout when the intrinsic you mean when the intrinsic goes away over time yeah yeah Yeah. and so let me ask you this because i i grapple with this myself so the thing that i do that has high intrinsic and literally zero extrinsic on a regular basis in my life is surfing Hmm. i love to surf Uh, i i learned a little bit later in life so I'm at best a mediocre longboarder, an intermediate longboarder. I'm a strong surfer, but I'm not great, and I never will be. And nobody, and I mean nobody, not even my mom, is going to watch me surf or is certainly going to award me or reward me. Or, you know, if one of my buddies is in the water, maybe they'll say nice wave, but that would be as close as that's like an extraordinary amount of extrinsic. I do it. Mm only for the intrinsic and then there's certain other things where um you know maybe it's 50 50 or you know if i'm completely candid the extrinsic is you know a higher percentage than the intrinsic um and so i but i can't figure out for myself this maybe you could be my therapist for a second (laughs) i can't figure out for myself why would i do surfing with zero extrinsic and 100 percent intrinsic and there are other things that i enjoy but if I'm a thousand percent candid, if there wasn't 
some reasonably, you know, high amount of extrinsic, I might not do it as much or at all. Or And so uh, this may be out of bounds for your research. You tell me, but how do human beings sort of make this intrinsic, extrinsic math in their head work? <laughs> I think we do kind of all have regression equations in our head with different weights, you know, <laughs> um, you know, where different variables are weighted differentially. I don't think we always know the effect um, of, of moving away from something that, so you gave the example of high extrinsic and you think if you didn't have that, you probably wouldn't still be doing it. But if you went away from it, you might actually know that you had something, you had a big hole in your life that you're missing. Right. Um, if you kinda if you go on a long vacation sometimes you I think that's kind of a if you look forward to coming back. Um I was just gone I was gone for a week and a week was more than enough for me. Um I I, I learned you know, I kinda relearn when I go on vacation how much I enjoy the process of 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 work, of achieving things and getting things done with other people and um you know, you, you could argue, well, work is the reason people go to work is you know, I obviously, we all need the extrinsic part of it, right? It's, it's part of work, but at the same time, if you can have a high, really high ratio of intrinsic with the extrinsic, it just makes your life a lot better. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think, I think people miss, zone is. Yeah, I think people in many cases would miss out, would miss it if they went away from it. Yeah. As, as my friend, David Sachs, the co-founder of PayPal and founder of Yammer, and now he's a, a VC, as he says, uh, beaches are boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it, you could put it in the retirement context too. How many people do you know that have retired that lost what they do, you know, and they either go back and find something else or um, some of them pass away too quickly, you know, um, there's something yeah, about I pursuit. On, I got schooled on that word. I had used retirement because I'm no longer a, a CMO, which is, you know, what I did for the bulk of my professional life. And um, legendary basketball player, Bill Walton, who's been on the podcast a couple of times and I've become friendly with, and he's an amazing guy. He kind of, he kind of gave me a really big whack, Jim, about using the word retirement. He's like, you're not retired. You're just doing different things. And, and I think he's really right. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we as human beings need to be engaged with things that um, give us our identity, that, that, that challenge our mind, that challenge our, in some cases, our physicality, our bodies. And that also give us a sense of both intrinsic and extrinsic, intrinsic, uh, you know, reward as well as extrinsic validations. Yeah, I, uh, I've I've met Bill once, um, and it was on something similar to this. And uh, I was talking with him about our well-being research, and and I completely agree. In fact, I only use the word retirement there because I think it's what people can kind of relate to because it's a life stage. But in our well-being work, we've made the point that there's one of the five uh, domains of, of well-being is what we call career well-being. And we called it career well-being because we think you always have a career, you know, you sh or you should, right? Um, you should always have, have something you do. What's the first thing that people ask you when you meet, when you meet them? What do you do? What do you do? And what do you do? And you better have an answer that gives you some level of intrinsic motivation or, or you're probably starting to fade away a bit. Um, so the, the key with businesses and leaders, I think, is to set people up so that they have a thought process and intentionality about that before they actually make a change in their life. They've actually planned for what that next step is, as opposed to, there, there's a lot of organizations that don't even ask people when they're going to retire, you know, hmm. they don't have a gauge on that. And so they just assume a certain age. Well, some people want to just keep going. Why would you let that intellectual capital just 
take off, you know? Well, um, I have a... Uh, or force it out. I have an 88-year-old father-in-law, and he's a farmer, and he has completely transformed my interpretation of, quote-unquote, old age, because there's nothing old about him at all. He doesn't act old. He doesn't sound old. He doesn't say old guy shit. Uh, he's fully engaged in the world. So if you want to talk to him about, you know, whatever's going on in the news or in politics or in sport or whatever it is, he's totally engaged as anybody else. And to your point on work, you know, he, he works his ranch four to six hours, five to six days a week. It's part of his identity. It's part of, and there's, and, and interestingly, I've never quite thought about it, uh, but as we're talking, Maybe I'll ask him. It, my interpretation, Jim, would be that he probably has a high level of both intrinsic and extrinsic. Like it, he loves talking to customers, and uh, he loves it when you know we sell fruit and shit. Um, but at the same time, a day by himself in the orchard pruning or picking, where he doesn't talk to anybody, makes him really happy. And you know, he he called the other day and was saying how beautiful all the blooms are looking, and and so forth and so on. And so I'll ask him the question. But my my sense would be he has high levels of both. Yeah. Um, my dad's retired and he lives in Southern Texas. And before he was retired, he'd sell insurance and I'd go around with him once in a while. And I noticed he'd always tell everybody the same jokes, you know, and, um, but he really did like to tell jokes. So when he retired, he started, uh, he built these chicken coops and just started, uh, it's like, I kept wondering why are you, you know, why are you raising all these chickens and you got all these eggs you can't eat. And so, um, I finally figured out that he, he did, he did that so that he could give away the eggs and he'd, he'd meet people until they'd still be telling the jokes, right? He, just liked, he liked that process of meeting people. So as a, as a vehicle for him, right? And then the, the police, came, he wasn't supposed to have chickens because he's in a, in a town, small town in Texas. And uh, the police came over and he thought they were going to bust him for having chickens. And the police actually wanted some eggs. So I guess. <laughs> so you can, you can bribe the cops with eggs and I guess. be okay. I guess. That's an important thing for me to know because I, I, <laughs> I can relate to that. My wife and I have eight hens and they are the love of my life. They are amazing pets. They're every bit as fun as a dog or a cat. And to your point, uh, they make breakfast. And, and yeah. even with eight, which maybe doesn't sound like a huge number, it's a lot of eggs when they all get going. And to your point, it is fun to give them away <laughs> to your neighbors <laughs> and friends. <laughs> so, yeah, I think your dad's really on to something. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, I'm curious, in this, this awesome new book of yours, you've outlined uh, or you've dug into 52 insights so what are some of the other things that you really want us to take away from from these uh, 52 insights well they're grouped into five sections so um and by the way the the chapters 52 chapters are um very short so the goal is that you'd pick it up um read it in 10 minutes you know pick, pick out an area that that's relevant to you in in terms of what you're working on right now um share it with your team, read it in 10 minutes and have a discussion about it. So they're all science-based insights that uh, are, are relevant for managers and leaders. So it's grouped into five sections. It starts with uh, strategy and it goes into culture. So uh, how do you, how do you develop an effective culture? Um, there's another area, another big section on what we call employment brand. So that's how you um, knowing that, 
culture now is very transparent uh, with social media, et cetera. What happens in organizations is shared outside of organizations very quickly. And so organizations can't just hide behind their traditional brand anymore. They've got to build a real, you know, authentic culture if they want to attract the best workers. So it's really about, you know, how do you build that employment brand? And then um, there's a section on kind of, you know, one of the key sections of the book is on that boss to coach concept. So, so what do, um, what do managers need to learn to, to move from boss to coach? And then there's a final, again, pretty long section of chapters on the future of work. And that ranges from everything from diversity and inclusion to women in the workplace, to uh, flex time, to office space, um, artificial intelligence and its role in, in business to, um, uh, predictive analytics. Uh, so we've tr- we tried to touch on everything that's relevant recently and summarize uh, the last decade or so of the work that we've been been doing. And maybe for a sec, let's go to um, um, diversity and, and, and women in the workforce and women in leadership. And, you know, it's been such a huge topic, uh, particularly for the last couple of years. What, what are mm-hmm. we learning there, Dr. Harder? Well, we found that there's three kind of key um, areas that organizations need to get right if they want to have not only a diverse workforce, but one that's inclusive. You could have a diverse workforce that's, that's, that's dysfunctional, right? So it's the key is that you've got to have the right culture to support the diverse workforce. So just hiring for diversity isn't enough. It's, it's essential, right? We, we have to do that. Um, and the workforce is more diverse. The, the millennial generation is about, from even a race perspective, is, is uh, twice as diverse as the baby boomer generation in the U.S. So, um, in so diversity is one thing. Available uh, yeah. workforce. Right. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah. So um, whether we want it or not, it's, we're going to have diverse workforces. I think we all want it. And so how do you leverage that? How do you build a culture so that so that you can get the most out of that diversity? In fact, in some of our research studies, we found that if you build the right culture, you build an engaging culture, and you have high diversity, you have higher productivity, higher intentions to stay than if you have a homogenous workforce um, with high, that's highly engaged. Or um, and on the other side of it, if you have a diverse workforce and you don't have a great culture, people are more likely to leave. So, you know, you got to get both of them right. Uh, but the, the three things we found in terms of building an inclusive culture and, and we related these three, three things to claims of discrimination, harassment, et cetera. Um, one is very simple. People have to say they're treated with respect. Very foundational. Um, when people give a, so on a, let's say we, we ask that on one to five scale, right? Five strongly agree, one strongly disagree. The people who give a one or a two, 90% of them will give uh will tell us that they had some type of discrimination or harassment issue. Um, now, whether that's association with just a bad work environment and they're, they're, they're more likely to, to, to point to something or whether it's a real discrimination or harassment issue, either way, it's bad for organizations, right? So that's an early sign is if you have, if you have people that are disagreeing, they're treated with respect, that's a pretty serious issue. And you can measure that and, and find parts of your organization that you need to kind of think about improving. Um, the other is um, whether each person is known for their strengths. We've talked about this earlier, but strengths is a, uh, can provide a language 
um, where each person knows themselves and knows other people through who they naturally are. Now, strengths vary considerably within races, within genders. So while there are some slight differences between, you know, genders, races, um, they're, they're very minor compared to the massive difference uh, across individuals within any group. So the key is to understand that variance within the group, understand that here everybody's different. If I know people for their strengths, um, we've got a very functional environment where we're, 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 we're moving much past stereotypes into. See, I, I um, proved a, that not all the stereotypes are true. I'm originally from Canada, Jim, and everybody says, oh, Canadians are so nice, and I'm not that nice. <laughs> I think you're pretty nice. <laughs> well, a lot of people have called me an asshole. <laughs> and, that, and that way, I'm not that Canadian. <laughs> Besides your wife? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of people who used to work with me. <laughs> I've been fired a bunch. <laughs> so inclusive okay. culture is one respect, two known for strengths. And what was the third one? Did I miss the third one? The third one is uh, they believe that the organization will do what is right if they have an issue of ethics and integrity come up. So, so that's kind of the, the, the part about is there a protocol and system in place so that if something does go wrong, it's going to get handled in the right way. So let, let me ask you a question about this. This is something that fascinates me endlessly about on this third topic. Why so many companies so many organizations seem to have an inability to do what on its face seems obviously right. And I'll, I'll give you two examples, one that's maybe a little controversial and one that's probably more controversial. You know, we had this crisis with Boeing where these planes went down and we come to find out that the CEO of Boeing is on the phone to the president telling him everything's okay and they are not grounding their planes or recommending they should be grounded and, and, of course, ultimately are forced to do that. And I just look at it and go, hey, fuck, Boeing, job number one, no one dies. That's job number one, not the stock price, not the quarter, not the orders, not any of that. And, and I, I understand the quarterly pressures and I understand all those things, but, like, to me, in my opinion, they got that horribly wrong. And it, it is insane to me that a company whose number one job is to get us there safely wasn't super proactive about that and had to be forced by governments. The other one that's maybe even more controversial uh, is, you know, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I'm not participating today. But I look at what's going on, and I think the answer to this problem in the Catholic Church seems obvious. Number one, all these guys who've been uh, accused of, of doing horrible things to young people, or, or people of any age for that matter, they need to go through the criminal justice system just like anybody else would, and they need to be not in their jobs until they're exonerated. That, that seems very obvious. Number two, if I was Pope, I would set a date. I don't know what the right date is, but by a certain time, uh, 50% of the, the, the um, uh, priests and bishops and cardinals need to be female, which would mean immediately we start recruiting females for those roles, and nuns should be able to convert if they want to become priests or if they want to stay nuns, do whatever you want. And of course, the other obvious one is, hey, all priests can marry. Now, in my opinion, that's how you handle something like this. But of course, whether it's Boeing or whether it's the church, they move at glacial speeds on what seem like to me 
intuitively obvious answers to resolve these sorts of problems. But all that said, I'm curious as to your interpretation on particularly this number three issue, which is companies and organizations doing what's right. Yeah, I, th- I think it takes really strong leadership, and it's unfortunate that leadership is being forced to to do what's right kind of after the fact in many cases with all the, you know, it's kind of come to the surface now with, with all the reports that have, that have gone public and, and at, almost out of fear. Um, I think there are leaders out there who have, have been strong and have done what is right, but um, it's a, it's a, the difference between short term and long term thinking kind of delayed, delayed gratification. Am I going to, if, if I take care of this now, it sure it might move my organization backwards uh, um, for a little bit, uh, to be exposed, but what the, what are the long-term consequences? You know, it takes strong leadership to see long-term consequences from short-term, you know, short-term pain. Um, and it's just not, it's not as common as we'd like it to be, unfortunately. Um, and you mentioned earlier, sometimes it's responding to the pressures of Wall Street, you know, publicly traded companies trying to just respond to numbers. And again, that's a very narrow kind of view. Um, but as organizations, my hope is that organizations um, move toward uh, building real authentic cultures that have to start with leadership. And then when they do that and they build strengths-based cultures and they, they build cultures of high integrity, and again, it has to start with leadership. And, and it's, it's the, the thing is it's implemented though by managers. So when, when we, we call our book, it's the manager, um, that's because the only way you get, so you can have a great leader, very strong leader that is just unaware of things that are going on because they don't have managers in place who are in tune with what's going on and can react to something before it escalates, right? And can do what's right before it escalates. The problem is people bury it and then it escalates later. But if you do what's right, if the managers can take care of it, and if you have great managers, um, all the best strategies, all the best intended cultures. Let's say your goal is to have as an organization, which all should, a a culture of high ethics, a culture of high compliance and ethics. Um, There's no way you're going to get that done if you don't develop great managers, hire and develop great managers. They're the ones that implement it. They're the ones that can create escalation of, of, of events. And um, they're the ones who are going to get the benefit. The great managers are the ones who are going to get the benefit of the doubt if something does happen because they know they'll be, the worker knows they're going to be taken care of. Um, so I guess my other point is leader, you have to have strong leaders, but leaders can't do it alone. And especially in these larger organizations that you're talking about, um, you've got to have a, a system where if the managers are developing, they think bigger than their own job. They think, they think about the whole enterprise. They don't, um, so I don't know if, again, I don't know if that directly answered your question, but I think those are some of the key. Yeah, it, what I think I'm hearing you say is for us to get this right, we have to be proactive as managers and as leaders in communicating in this organization. We do what's right because it's right. And the leaders have to practice it. They have to demonstrate it. Their behaviors have to be in alignment with that. Um, and I think we also have to be in organizations where we take decisive action when things are wrong. I think I, I often find that, um, you know, there's the thing that happens, whatever that negative or bad thing is that happens. And the 
inability to act just seems to make the thing some material amount bigger or worse because we didn't act right so there's the there's the shittiness of the thing that happened and then there's the added exponential shittiness on top of it because the manager leader executive team clearly didn't you know in the case of boeing by way of example it's like hey um asshole instead of getting on the phone to the fucking president trying to get him to make sure that he doesn't ground your planes why aren't you spending time figuring out why the fucking planes are going down and doing the number one thing that we want you to do which is to protect human life and oh by the way that's what everybody in your organ like the CEO, if I was on the board of Boeing, I, and I forget the guy's name, the CEO would be fucking fired immediately. You're gone. You did not take action. And even worse, the action that you did take was orthogonal to the core values of what I think a company like Boeing should have. And yet that asshole is still the CEO. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, what you said that... Uh, you need decisive action um, when things do occur, knowing that you're, you're going to take a, you're going to, things are going to move backwards for your organization for a short time, but in the future, things are going to be so much better. And, and by, the, by the way, it's the responsible thing to do for the human beings that are involved. Um, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it's kind of amazing though, that people get, you know, that leaders get into positions where they, um, that they, they aren't able to think bigger than that. But um the uh but but again you know in large organizations you can't really you know even if you do what's right as a leader you've got to have um managers throughout the organization that are on the same page and that that are alerted to issues i mean maybe maybe in that case there there could have been managers that knew what was you know that, that if they're that could have detected some of the problems before they occurred even you know well and then in some organizations it's even worse than that you know, Volkswagen being a great example where I don't know how many people knew, but many, many, many people had to have known that they built software so that their cars knew when they were being tested by the environmental authorities to change the dynamics of the way the engine worked so that they could make it look like they were admitting way less than they were. And of course they got caught and it was the biggest scandal in automotive history. Um, in that case, not only was the CEO a douchebag, but there were many, many people participating in this that just let it go on. And so you just look at it and go, you know, or Wells Fargo is another example of a company that just continuously is in the news for doing shitty stuff to customers, ripping customers off. And, you know, I go to a place where I just go, are some companies just evil? Like there's some, they got possessed by Satan somewhere along the way. And, uh, and culturally, I, I don't know if you can rotor root that out. I don't know. We'll see with those kinds of companies. But it seems like, you know, uh, these companies that are repeat offenders of this sort of stuff, you just go, is it even possible to fix a place like that? In some cases, in large companies, there are, we talked about intrinsic, extrinsic motivation. There are kind of um, unfortunate built-in extrinsic motivators that narrow people's thinking um, and create a higher risk that, that things will the dysfunctional things will happen. So I, I think uh, leaders need to really take a, a close look at, we've got a chapter in our book on, on pay and it, it relates to those issues. You know what, you know, um, 
how do you optimize pay for individuals and uh, what's the right balance between um, extrinsic rewards versus intrinsic rewards? And uh, that comes really to get that right. You've got to know the job uh, really well, and it's not going to be the same across every job. You've got to understand, you know, what jobs will, do you really want that kind of stay in your lane, narrow kind of thinking to get high productivity and what are the ethical risks from that in terms of people staying in that lane and then, then veering off a little bit into unethical territory. So there's a, um, it's a complicated area for sure, but I think there are some, some kind of, you know, we know that most people want some form of, you know, equitable bonus pay for, for being more productive than somebody else. Right. So there's that. Um, but there's some jobs that are, you know, where it'll be almost all, you know, in, uh, intrinsic and others where there will be more extrinsic and kind of understand that balance and really given a lot of thought to um, where do the, where does that kind of pay structure influence human behavior and result in too narrow of behavior so that you're not, so people aren't thinking bigger than they're not thinking altruistically about their work and they're not thinking about the end customer enough. Um, and were there any particular insights in this kind of uh, pay as kind of motivation to kind of get the balance where we want it so we see less, you know, CEOs of Boeing doing dumb shit? Well, one thing is that uh, uh, pay for individuals needs needs to be aligned with how they are developing. So that's where you kind of combine. Hmm. When I, what I mean by that is when people advance in their pay, it's got to be consistent with them gaining particular skills and, and knowledge and areas that you want them to advance in their work to get better and to reach the higher level. So their development and their pay needs to, needs to kind of be aligned. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing is how people perceive their pay is very different de depending on the overall work environment. Um, I think, I think though a, lo a lot of it starts with um, what, you know, the kind of culture that is um, not only encouraged, but almost demanded from the top of the organization and then how that's implemented through every manager in a very, in a very authentic way. So how do, how do we uh, represent our culture through all the life cycle stages? So when we're attracting people, how are we thinking about, let's say we want a culture of ethics and compliance. How do we build parts of that into how we attract people? How do, how do we build parts of that into how we hire people? How do we build parts of that into how people are onboarded and the messages they get during onboarding? How do we do that um, as they're as they're being managed? We just talked about pay, but performance management. How's it how's it built into there? How's it built into how they become engaged in their work and messages they're sent there? Um, how does how does it how's it built into how we handle data in our organization? You know, if we do a survey, is are, are we okay if people manipulate it sometimes? I mean, or is there, or is there a standard where, you know, your job's on the line if you do something like that? Um, so, you know, there's an accountability piece in there too. Uh, the other thing is, how do you, how's it built into how you, you know, how people uh, uh, exit the organization? So, do they exit feeling proud, or do they? And, so and do many they, companies get this wrong. Yeah. Right. The, 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 the minute you say, hey, I'm leaving, all of a sudden you're a pariah 
And the companies that I see get this really right are, you know, the big consultancies and accounting firms. They call their former employees alumni and they, they treat them super well on the way out the door. But there's some companies who the minute you tell them you're leaving, you know, some security guy shows up and makes you log out of your laptop and, you know, treats you like you just committed some kind of a federal crime. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, and, and it affects your brand, of course. Now the, the, you know, your, your, uh, your culture kind of now through social media will kind of be out there. People will talk about it, but, uh, uh, the people that leave, you know, um, if, if you, if you don't have a good exit program where they actually, I mean, th- think about it, you know, most people that come into an organization, unless they do something really unethical, um, they probably contributed something, right. Um, some of them a lot. Uh, so do you have a, something in your protocol that, that helps kind of reminds people, you, you contributed this to our organization. We thank you for that. You should be proud of the work that you did here. Create some brand ambassadors. That's not always going to work for everybody, but you can increase the percentage of those. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think, I think that piece of it is important. Awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Harder, I could clearly talk to you for hours about this, um, but I want to be respectful of your time. Are there any other things that you wanted to touch on before we wrap? See, we've covered a lot of ground, I think. Um, you know, the, uh, just one more thing, I guess that, uh, and I, I mentioned, you know, several times that what, I think one of the real keys to getting all this right is shifting from boss to coach, but, uh, many organizations have a tough time with culture change. So we've been talking a lot about that. And one of the major reasons is that they don't have, um, managers who cooperate with one another. And uh, so they've got a bunch of silos in the organization. This relates to, you know, the ethics issues in some cases, because people just aren't, it relates to a lot of companies are talking now about how they want to be more agile. How can you be agile if your managers don't like each other or if they have these different, we call them silos in the organization. Now in one sense, uh, when those silos occur, it fits with human nature because, you know, humans have existed for a long time and, and most of our existence has been in pretty small tribes, right? And so we were, our brains are built to support our tribe and our, and their, our brains are built to say, well, our tribe's better than this tribe um, because that keeps us going. Um, but what we found is that when managers themselves are developing, I mentioned this earlier, they think broader than just their own team and they're more likely to feel connected to the overall organization, uh, particularly if they are managed effectively. Um, So one of the keys to getting all of this that we've been talking about, right, is the manager's own experience as an employee. Um, So it's not a big chunk of it is, is, is that they can influence 70% of the variance in their team's engagement. Um, But how they themselves are developing is really important. Managers, um, about two thirds of them are either not engaged or actively disengaged at work of, of managers we've studied. Two um, thirds are disengaged or not engaged. Yeah. Not engaged wow. mean they just show up to the minimum required, not inspiring at all. Disengaged means they're actually against the organization. Um, the, uh, the other thing is that they have higher managers have higher stress and less clear expectations than the people they manage. 
So how are you going to get the whole workforce going in the same direction when your managers aren't having a great experience? Part it's of it relates hard. back if you're to a manager and you're having a shitty experience. It's, it's hard to get yeah. yourself psyched up to ha- create an environment for your people to have a great experience. Right. So one of the keys to getting all this right and getting culture right is to make sure that managers are having the right experience from, they need to be coached by their manager. And um, when, when that happens and they feel like they're developing, they're, they're much more likely to do what's in the best interest of the company, which includes uh, sharing information with other managers, um, building a more agile environment where if something has to happen quickly, we're, I'm going to work, we're, our team, they're going to tell their team, we're, we're going to work with this other team over here and we're going to get this done um, because here's why it's important to our organization. As opposed yeah. to them, they could easily say, um, well, it's corporate, you know, corporate's doing this. It's not my fault. You know, that's the, that, that, that could be the default easily. It's easy for people to do that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's, that's another kind of little. Interesting. And I'm curious if any of this showed up in your research that the, the, one of the antidotes to that, that I have found in my career is have leaders at whatever level in the organization swap jobs have your head of marketing take over engineering and, and vice versa for a week and, and sales and finance or whatever it is. And because what I've found in companies where the top, you know, six to 10 people are kind of all up in each other's business, it's actually very, very healthy. Um, and it, it tends to break that, that, that silo fiefdom bullshit. But I'm curious hmm. uh, what antidotes uh, you see. Uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen that as much. I'm sure it happens in some companies and I, I can see how that would give you a perspective on someone else's, you know, life and what they're going through in there. And so I, I could see that, um, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to, uh, you know, they, they've got to have, um, a boss themselves that moves to coach. <laughs> um, but they've also, um, another antidote to that is that they, they know their strengths. They know the strengths of the other managers. So they see them as, you know, they're sitting in a room together. Let's say you got a bunch of department managers in a room together. You're not looking across the table and saying, well, this person should be more like me. You're saying, well, this person isn't like me. And that actually, you know, we, we can leverage something, something from each other. They might also learn we have something in common. Yes. You know, we're both relators or we're, um, they might find out that that person might have the same strength as them and can relate to them in that way. So it, it just creates a language where it's easier. It's a, sh- I call it a shortcut. Yeah. It's a shortcut to people getting to know one another. Um, and so that, that can work effectively because it's, you know, it's a language people can relate to and, and it shortens the distance between one person and the other. Yes. Makes a ton of sense. Anything else, Jim, before we wrap? I think I've blabbed on long enough. I think. <laughs> well, I don't think it was blabbing at all. I think it's <laughs> this is very important work, and obviously an incredible research study that you've done to to uh, build this book on top of. And uh, you know, I think uh, you know, I just want to thank you for doing this work. And I know how hard it is to write a book like this. And I think um, you know, you you guys are on a very important set of topics. And who better than um, than your organization to to, to lead this charge? Well, thank you, Chris. It's been great being being with you here today, and I've enjoyed the talk. Thank you, Dr. Harder, and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Another book, any more research, anything you want to talk about, uh, I'm all ears. Uh, thank you. It's been a fascinating discussion. Appreciate it. Good to, get, good to get to know you a little bit.
There he is, Dr. Jim Harder on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode or that conversation on this episode as much as I did. Now, did you know that our good friends at NetSuite are the business management platform for many of the world's top venture capital firms? Yeah, that's right. NetSuite gives VC firms the confidence that their investments have the software backbone to grow to their full potential from seed stage to IPO. NetSuite provides a highly scalable and flexible system with outstanding reporting. NetSuite ensures that VC firms have clear visibility into their investments and can quickly generate accurate performance metrics to their own shareholders or to the public markets. The other cool thing is NetSuite is the primary choice for venture-backed startups. Companies who are planning for massive success and growth use NetSuite as their platform because deploying a single cloud system to manage your day-to-day business that streamlines your operation is what you need if you're going to be a high-growth category queen. NetSuite provides a single version of the truth, which is essential if you're a venture-backed startup, particularly when you're going through things like the due diligence process. So if you're a VC firm, you need world-class financial management and transparency. And if you're a VC-backed startup, you need a comprehensive platform that will help you scale and manage unprecedented growth from the garage to the IPO and beyond. And NetSuite is offering an opportunity for you as a listener to this podcast to get a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. So go to netsuite.com slash different. And there you'll be able to set up your free one-hour growth review, netsuite.com slash different. Um, also wanted to let you know about the new book, Crash Your Career, from my friend Isaac Morehouse. Check out crash.co slash different. And while you're there, you can pick up a free preview of the book, including the foreword to the book, which I am super proud to have written. Check out crash.co slash different. If you want to find us, we're uh, Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. And uh, while you're there, why not subscribe? Because even if you subscribe to this podcast on a major podcast platform, um, we don't know you're there. So if you want to develop a direct relationship with us, go to lockhead.com and subscribe. And here's what I can promise you. Number one, we will never sell your email address. Never over my dead body. Never. More importantly, for the last several months, we've been trying to take our, um, our email newsletter game up and put a lot of attention and thought into the stuff we're sending. So know that when we send you something, we think it's great. We won't send you stuff that's garbage. <laughs> if you, uh, you want to get a hold of us, black hole, all one word, at lockhead.com and on Twitter and Instagram at lockhead. All right. We would like to thank the number one best-selling new book by our guest today, Dr. Jim Harder, called It's the Manager. Check it out wherever you get legendary books or again at lockhead.com. The Mission Daily Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, a podcast for smart people who want to get smarter. Amazon's number one bestseller, Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different, written by Heather Clancy and myself. The amazing folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org, dream, plan, and live your best life. We have a big annual conference coming up in beautiful Long Beach, California in October this year. Go to onelifefullylive.org slash clockhead for more information. Growwire.com. It's what uh, legendary growth-oriented people and entrepreneurs are reading. Check out growwire.com. 
Now, um, do you want to get back one of the most important things that you and I have, which is time? Then why not think about bottleneck virtual assistants and leveraging the power of a virtual assistant? Check out bottleneck.online today. Another podcast I love, Eric Hunley's Unstructured. It's very much like this podcast in that Eric, like myself, believes in the power of real conversations. Check out Unstructured by Eric Hunley. And last but not least, the incredible people at Habitat for Humanity. Homelessness is a giant problem in our world, and Habitat's vision is a place is a place for everyone to live. So check out habitat.org to make a difference today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast is produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Thinking, uh, speaking of producers, this episode was produced by the legendary Jamie J, edited by Sarah Parrish and Mike D. Show notes by Roanne Nostras and uh, want to remind you to teach kids management, support your local entrepreneurs, pay Prius drivers don't forget, don't be lame, get out of the passing lane uh, remember to buy John's crazy socks, thank you Candy Dandy I love you mom and dad and hey Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together doesn't it? Today our deepest apologies go to Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, sorry Kay we just ran out of time for you That's it, my friends. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.